You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. It's brilliant to be able to just come and hear the word of God read to us. I'm loving this book of Ephesians. If you've not been amongst us or you've missed a couple of weeks, we're actually on week six. Can you believe it? Out of 12. Paul is writing this letter to a church that he spent about two years establishing. This was an important city. It was a place of culture, finance, arts, just like London. Mind you, it had a theatre. Can you imagine? It had a theatre that could seat 50,000 people and a population the size of Ealing. Wow. There was definitely no COVID in those days. You know, there was no mask. People would ram in. You would have this. Paul is in prison, though. He's writing this letter. He's not trying to correct the church. He's not trying to sort out any problem. He's just flowing with the gospel. What he's really saying is, you know, the death of Jesus and the resurrection, that wasn't just some small event in history. That was the center point of it all. And then he says, you know, we now have a new unity between us and God. The dividing wall has been taken down. He says, we've now got new life. Literally, you were dead and now you're alive. You have now got new relationships. How you do life is totally changed because of this. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your words today, I ask that it would speak to us. Lord, I'm sure, I know it wasn't just one church. I know lots of churches read this. We believe Ephesians was written almost to our headquarters. But I I bet every person that, you know, knew it was being unfurled just sat there thinking, wow, what's going to come to us? I pray that we have a hunger and anticipation and excitement about hearing from the word of God today. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to say that uh, you're not allowed to sing at church, but that means you can do twice as many hallelujahs and amens during the preach. Yeah, preach it, brother. It always helps. I've told people before, lean forward and you get a better sermon. Yeah, that includes those at home. Lean forward, you get a better sermon. For this reason is how we start Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. And, And you think, golly, For this reason, what reason? Well, actually, he started this sentence, we believe, and then got sidetracked. Easily done, isn't it? You know, you're suddenly talking about something, and then off he goes, and he's talking about something. So he started it in Ephesians 3, verse 1, and now he picks it up again in Ephesians 3 and verse 14. What reason? Well, obviously, what I should really do is preach the whole of chapter 2 to you this morning, because it was for that reason that they were reconciled to God and they were reconciled to one another. But what happens as a result of this reconciliation? What does Paul do? It's simple. It's not rocket science. He prays. Paul prays. You see, doctrine should lead us to worship more than discussion. The whole thing of this, and look, I am loving it, and if you have not got one of the books on Ephesians, I've got two left. You can have it today. These groups have been brilliant. But doctrine shouldn't just lead to discussion. It should lead to intercession. It should lead us to prayer and worship. Paul, as he's wrestled with this doctrine, he's basically said, oh, 
God, you're wonderful. He cannot help but pray. He says, I kneel. That was really unusual. I don't know what position. We, we're not a church, really. We, we like to be informal. I, I mean, I thought I was being casual, and someone said, oh, it's the classic checks today, is it, Pete? We don't often talk about posture, but I'd like to take a moment just to think about this. You see, for the Jew, you didn't tend to kneel. You tended to stand. How do I know that? Well, Jesus tells the parable, doesn't he? Don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. It's in Matthew 8, verse 5. There was almost this thing that generally people stood to pray, but Paul is kneeling. Have I got any other examples in Scripture of kneeling, and what does it say to us? Well, there's actually several. I'd love to go through them all. I'm not. I'm just going to pick three or four. The first was Solomon. In 1 Kings 8... Verse 54, Solomon has basically been given the task by his father David to build this temple for God's glory and that the nation might gather together and worship him. And he finishes this temple and basically has this service of dedication. When Solomon had finished all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out. Towards heaven. It's almost like this is Solomon. You get this picture. The temple is being dedicated. This is, this is a defining moment. And he's on his knees with his hands up and he's, he's praying his heart out. The next illustration, example that I'd like to remind you of is Stephen. Stephen, many of you will know in Acts 7, is the first martyr in the New Testament. What does that mean? He was killed for his belief. They're literally picking up stones and killing him. We read this in Acts 7, verse 60. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. He died. It's prayer on his knees in this moment of like, oh, agony, passion, dedication to God, forgiving. He is on his knees. When else do we read of Christians praying on their knees? Peter. Peter, who was the disciple of Jesus that you know, did so many things right and wrong. In Acts 9, he gets called to a household of a dead girl. <laughs> Families grieving, and they're looking for this miracle. And, and obviously he'd been with Jesus, and he'd seen Jesus do something like this. And we read in Acts 9, Peter sent them all out of the room. He got down on his knees, and he prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes. You see, Peter was desperate. And what he thought is, oh, God, would you intervene in this family where there's death and there's suffering? He got down on his knees. The last example I wanted to bring before you this morning, Jesus himself. 
Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We know that the, the things are happening the week of passion, as we describe it now. Things were just heating up. He's there in Jerusalem. We know that these, he's, the next day he will be crucified. It tells us in Luke 22, he withdrew about a stone's throw, knelt down before the Father and prayed. I mean, it says he was so desperate in prayer, there's drops of blood sweating from him. Paul is on his knees in prayer. What's he praying for? Is it the temple? Is it healing? Is it that he's dying? Is it he's facing a trial? I'll tell you why Paul is on his knees. Why, Pete? Because he's passionate about the church. This whole letter, he is passionate about the church. And literally, he's on his knees saying, God, this is your bride, this is your body. I love the church. What about you? What about me? I'm always aware when I bring a challenge and a question to other people, how often do I get on my knees and pray for the church? How passionate am I about the church? I spoke to someone this week who told me that for the last two months, he had been praying on his knees. He said it made him so much more aware of who God is that he prays to. Paul is very clear who God is. We know that he uses the word father eight times in the book of Ephesians. Paul uses that title 42 times in his letters. We know that that is a word that we are to use. We come to a father in heaven. Jesus himself told us, didn't he, when you pray, use that word father. I do the CBR journal, community Bible reading. I'll be honest, and I'm not trying to shame anyone here. My community's gone fairly quiet at the moment, but I am 37 chapters into the book of Job, and I'm struggling myself. (laughs) Every morning when you get the community Bible out, you write a prayer. The first word I write every single day is Father. Father. Because that's the one we pray to. I would like to question, do you pray to Almighty? Do you pray to Creator? I think the Bible says we come and pray to our Father. Richard Coerkin, he wrote a commentary that I read this week on this, says the rocket engine that drives us to prayer is not technique, but theology. Understand not how to pray, but who you pray to. I think if we get a grasping of who this God is, that's why we want to get on our knees. It's not the the posture. It's not even the name. It's understanding the God we come to. Desmond Tutu, uh, many would say, was a radical man of God in the time of apartheid and the peace reconciliation, Nobel Peace Prize he gets, bishop in Cape Town. They reckon he used to start every day with an hour in prayer. Every day. Seeking God. 
Another commentator that I read this week in preparation, John Stott, says the best way to discover a Christian's chief anxieties and ambition is to study the content of his prayers and the intensity of what he prays about. Prayer expresses our desire. Please, 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 I am not trying to have a go. Look, we we all pray about things in our own life. I feel mega challenged bringing this. Paul was in prison, and he doesn't pray about his own situation. He prays for the church. I'm totally aware that it's a privilege to preach the word to you. I get more out of it, I'm sure, than you get from me. I feel very challenged by this point because I can bring my shopping list to God of how he needs to sort my week out. Whereas Paul seems to get caught up in God's purposes and prays passionately. How do we make our prayers bigger? I think partly when we pray through the Bible, we pray God's agenda more than our own. So I want to challenge us. A church with high expectations, come and be a church of prayer. And then I've got two other words that I want to bring to us this morning. The first this is this, power. Power. A strong theme of Paul's prayer for the believers in Ephesians is the power of God. I know if you've got your Bible open, Ephesians 3 and verse 16, you'll read it. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit. And then you verse 18, that you may have power together with the Lord's holy people. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power. Look, let's not miss the beauty of this passage. If you've been coming a few weeks, you will know that Paul's theme is you are in Christ. He says it multiple times, but not today. He says, Christ is in you. He's talking about something of knowing the power of God. The Holy Spirit in us is not a nominal extra. Jesus said, didn't he, to the disciples, look, stay in Jerusalem. Why? In Acts 1, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. A church with high expectations needs the power of God. I grew up in a Christian family. I've always joked that I could draw a green hill and three wooden crosses from about the age of three. I prayed the prayer myself when I was nine years old. Jesus, I'm sorry for what I've done wrong. Please forgive me. I'd like to live for you. But if I'm totally honest, I think my life probably changed the most as a teenager when I was filled with the Holy Spirit. It felt like the rest of my life I'd I'd been a plane, but I'd only ever taxied around to the airport. And suddenly I'd been filled with this power of the Spirit, and it felt like my life took off. Billy Graham had a similar experience to Pete Cornford. As a young man, they said he was an ordinary preacher. He heard a guy called Stephen Olford preach on the promise to fill believers with the Holy Spirit. He said to the guy afterwards, I see it, I want it, I need it. After prayer, he says, I have it, I'm filled. This is a turning point in my life. 
You see, I believe that the, the Holy Spirit gives us power to worship, power to tell others about Jesus, power to resist temptation, power to pray, power to read the Bible. A church with high expectations, let's come and draw upon his power. The other word that you'd say to me, okay, power's in there several times. What's the other word, Pete, you mentioned? Another strong theme that we see in this prayer is love. Love. It's actually, uh, it's mentioned in two different ways. It, It talks about being rooted and established. Rooted is basically, it's like a tree. It's something natural, isn't it? It goes down deep. Established is actually something to do with like man-made, you know, buildings that would be high. You know, I'm avoiding the politics of Ealing at the moment where we started with trees and we're going to buildings. But there's this thing of, come on, there's something being established and rooted. This is love. He then uses four dimensions. How do you sort of get over it? I've never been to the 4D cinema, but I'd love to go. I mean, 3Ds, you know, when you, it, it just comes out at you. 4Ds, and then when they start flashing water around or flicking air everywhere, or your seat moves. It's that kind of dimension that he's talking about love. He says it's how wide is the love of God. We think that was Jew and Gentile. We think it was the poor, the immoral, the privileged, the dysfunctional. In fact, it was the whole world. That's how wide is the love of God. How long is the love of God? It lasts for all eternity, before the foundations of the earth, and right until the end, God loves us. How high is the love of God, he talks about. The seriousness of sin. It saves us from hell. It sends us to heaven. It seats us in heavenly places. How deep the love of God. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Paul says, I pray that you might know the love of God. Similar when he's writing to the church in Rome, Romans 8. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God is deep. I was trying to think, what analogy could you possibly use? I was thinking Mount Everest. Do you know Mount Everest is five and a half miles high? That's not, the, that's not actually the, the tallest thing we could think about. The Mariana Trench, apparently in the ocean, is seven miles deep. How do I get my head around that kind of perspective, those kind of dimensions? That's nothing compared to the love of God. Are you aware today that God really loves you? And this is not now the time to look at someone else and think, I think he's talking about them. It's you. God loves you. Leave the rules. Enjoy the relationship. Don't desire what God gives you. Desire him. God loves you. And then almost as a result of this prayer, when he's praying his heart out, he's praying for them to know the power, and he's praying for them to know the love, and then he slips into this doxology. Amazing words of worship. In fact, Aisha's going to bless us with them when we finish this morning. Our God is able. That's he's able to do works. We ask. That's because he hears. We think. He reads our thoughts. All God can perform 
more expectations higher, abundantly. You cannot calculate God's blessings far more abundantly, immeasurably more. God himself said this in Isaiah in the Old Testament, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than yours. This end of chapter 3, there are six chapters in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 3 really is the end of the, the theology bit, and then the next three chapters will be much more practical that we'll be looking at for the next six weeks. He just explodes in praise of who God is. F.F. Bruce, he's a British scholar, said this, it is impossible to ask God for too much. His capacity for giving far exceeds his people's capacity for asking or even imagining. As we conclude, I know the band will be coming back to lead us. That's a slight hint. There is a danger with COVID that our world has shrunk. There is a danger that we just live in our own homes and think about our own lives. And yet when we look at the theology of Ephesians, we're looking at a magnificent God. We're looking at a God who wants to challenge us to think about Ealing, to think about London, to think about the world. I guess my challenge is, my challenge, and I'm presenting it to you and presenting it to you online. Has our dream of God become so small? We don't need to pray. We don't need his love because actually we're not in a very vulnerable place. We don't even need his power because we're just doing life at home in front of our own screen. How do we get to the point of dreaming bigger things for the church his bride, his plan, his purpose, rather than letting ourselves just get sucked down to something small. I'm going to end with this quote, and then I know they're going to lead us in a, a response song. Think of what God might do in you and through you. You as a community, you as an individual. Now reflect on the fact that God is perfectly capable of doubling that trebling that, going so far beyond it that if you look back at the present moment and wonder how you could be so short-sighted. Father, we are sorry when our view of you is just too small. We're sorry when our world shrinks to our own home. We honestly believe that you've called us to make an impact in Ealing, London, and the world. And sometimes we just think, golly, do I get through another week or another month? I pray that our study of theology and you leads us to prayer and praise and lives radically live for you. Lord, I pray that we will literally get on our knees before you, longing for your power and your love in our lives.
for your glory. Amen.